Good morning and welcome to Weekend Rewind. Today we've got Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner with Certified Wealth Management and Investment LLC. Well, he'll share all his financial tips and tricks to help you with your personal wealth management. Remember, you can catch Kurt at his normal time Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy Master Your Finances. Only on 1077 The Bronx. Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Master Your Finances presented by Certified Wealth Management and Investment. I am Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional located in Princeton, New Jersey. I can be reached through our website, which is www.cwmi.us, or you can call me directly at 609-716-4700. This week, very pleased to have with us Dr. Kelly Vidal, who is the Dean, College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Kelly, very happy to have you on today. And I thought what we might want to talk a little bit about is you're in the education realm, dealing at Ryder as a dean. And I know that we've had a lot happening throughout the year. So I thought I might start off by just giving a little bit of background about how things worked prior to all of this happening, what would be kind of a normal way of operating uh, the college, and then maybe we'll move on from there. So what is kind of the normal way we used to operate colleges? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Kurt. I appreciate it. So the normal way, so for those of you that are familiar with higher education, the normal way is for many residential colleges, we have students living on campus. We have our classes taking part nearly wholly on campus in classrooms, faculty and students, you know, interacting with each other, students living in dorms, typical college experience. But obviously back in March, things changed very dramatically. And so like all higher education places of business across the country, we had to pivot very quickly. Pivot is a word we've used a lot in the last six months, I will say. And so back in March, you know, when the pandemic hit and the seriousness and the gravity of the situation hit, Ryder, like almost all universities, realized we were going to have to close. And obviously closing in the middle of a semester poses very unique and interesting challenges. And so Basically, we had spring break to figure out how would we continue to deliver our curriculum remotely over the next six to seven weeks. And so, you know, we can certainly talk a little bit more about that, but that's where March took us. Right. So I'm just going to take back. I just remember myself is like, I remember the announcement. Okay, everybody, we're going to, we're going to shut. At one point we had, we had a virus. We go, okay, everybody be careful. And then all of a sudden they said, hey, this is really serious. Let's shut down for two weeks and then we'll come back and everything be kind of normal. So can you kind of take us back to like, what was that initial reaction? It may, to me, I mean, most businesses, we shut down for two weeks, not a huge deal. It's inconvenient. And then as you went through those few weeks and so we realized it wasn't going to just be two weeks, we're going to have to kind of, as you said, pivot and maybe run things a little differently than we were before. Yeah, I think when that realization hit that it wasn't, oh, this is temporary, we'll just get back to business as usual. Um, like with businesses, things got really serious. We recognized that we couldn't get back to business as usual because, you know, in addition to students in the classrooms, we had students living on campus, right? And so those are situations where we are the stewards of their health and safety. And so it was really, really critical for us to recognize we couldn't control for the health and safety given all of the uncertainties, right? So we've learned so much here we are in August, but back in March, we knew so, so little. And so the right and the safe thing to do was to send our students home as we had to figure out, you know, those next steps. So I'm sure that was interesting. You mentioned spring break. So that was, I don't remember the exact timing, but that was, did that correlate fairly similar to spring break period? Is that what kind of happened? Yes. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So, so 
you know, I can clearly remember the president calling his cabinet together saying we have a situation, right? And so it's like what you probably imagine, you know, 20 people sitting around a large, you know, table, like even like you do in the corporate world, saying we have a real situation. And right. so what we decided to do is it was coinciding with spring break. We took a two week spring break. Students had no classes for two weeks. And the real important reason for that, Kurt, was to allow faculty to prepare to deliver their curriculum remotely. We recognized that a week was a really short period of time to figure out how do I do this? So giving them those two weeks in theory allowed them more preparation time to, to finish out the semester remotely. So it sounds like you kind of knew that you had to you had to be ready, right? Because we really weren't sure back then. So right. changing an entire like um, in-person experience where kids are going, I mean, I'm envisioning a lot of things. One, I'm, I'm on campus and maybe I, it's not so easy for me to go home, right? I mean, who knows, right? What the situation is, is I'm supposed to be here for two or three more months, maybe, maybe where I'm supposed to go. So I can envision that as being very complicated, getting all the students actually moved home. That must have been interesting. And then also converting your entire in-school curriculum, in-classroom curriculum to an online curriculum. Mm -hmm. I know our nonprofit had to do that. And that took a little longer than two weeks. And we're a little tiny nonprofit. We're not a big organization. So I'm envisioning this as uh, having a lot of barriers depending on the professor and the curriculum and what they had to do. How did you kind of get that done? That's pretty quick. Yeah. So let me, let me come. There's a lot there. So let me comment on a couple of those areas. First, let's talk about the students in residency. So you, you pointed out something really important. Not every student has the luxury of just being able to go straight home, right? We have international students. We have students that are housing insecure. And so the one thing I want to do is give a huge shout out, not just at Ryder, but I think across the country to all the residence life professionals and facilities professionals who really worked to make sure that if students couldn't leave campus, they were allowed to stay, allowed to stay safely. They were still housed and fed and safe. So, you know, Ryder did that very well, as did many other universities. As far as the point about the faculty, one advantage Ryder had that I'm very grateful for is we do have a good number of faculty that are used to delivering the curriculum remotely. We have a good array of online courses. So we, unlike some other universities where there's no online teaching, we were at least in a position of strength to say, okay, we, we got this. We know how to do it. But then as far as those faculty that have never taught online, you're absolutely right. There, two weeks is not sufficient time. And so, you know, we had a lot of our teaching and learning center professionals, a lot of our IT professionals really trying to get those faculty up to speed. And then the last thing I'll note is that, you know, again, not all students have the luxury of proper technology to be able to receive courses at home, right? You know, whether or not it's a it's not an ideal living situation, whether or not it's you're living in a rural area where you don't have access to, you know, good high speed Internet. So we had to struggle through a lot of those problems, just like a lot of other universities. But I am pleased to say that students were given loaner laptops if they needed them, if they didn't have that technology. So, you know, these are not things that are unique to Ryder. I think you will if you interviewed anyone from across the country from higher ed, you'd see a lot of similar themes. Yeah, no, we've seen a lot of people having to adjust. And I know that some of the courses, um, so I, I'm thinking about going through the courses in my mind. So one of the things we had unique as a, as a nonprofit, we actually have like dog training. So there's like something that's like a really hands-on. Right. So, so I know colleges have the same thing. I mean, if you have like a lab where there's chemistry and there's, there's things where people actually go into a location to do the work, um, how, do, how do you adjust that? Because some of that's really hard to do. You can do some of it virtually, but other things maybe not so easily. Right. And actually, you know, so I'm a scientist myself and I've, I've had more than my fair share of teaching laboratories over the years. And you're absolutely right. They're very, very hands-on. 
So short term, if we reflect back on the spring, short term, students were doing a lot of data analysis, you know, basically some of the things that you don't do hands on. There's also, I'm happy to say, a lot of very high quality videos that are out there that are that are available to faculty to at least have students sort of see how some lab experiments work. Moving ahead for the fall, regardless of whether or not the state was closed or not, um, you know, stage two or stage three, the governor did recognize that hands-on laboratory instruction is critical. And so things like clinical labs and science labs were allowed to operate in person, provided you put all the safeguards in place, social distancing, mask wearing, et cetera. And Ryder certainly will be doing that. I have children that are attending other universities, and I know they're doing their science labs in person as well in the state. So there is that recognition that you can't, you can't really learn if you're not doing like hands-on hands-on learning like in science labs. So it sounds like even if you're working, quote, like fully remote, it's really going to be a little bit more of a blend. And when necessary, I guess some of the students will be able to come on campus to do certain types of lab work. But what now, what if I'm one, I guess they're staying on campus. So some people that can't commute, so you have to divide them up a little differently, right, as far as how you do that. And I'm sure you've had to make accommodations in the facilities, right? Because there's a lot of rules and regs that came into place. So if they're living on campus, did you have to make adjustments there as well to the housing itself? Yeah. So so as far as the housing itself, Ryder, like many other universities in the state, is, is allowing occupancy. So allowing housing occupancy because students, there are many students that want to still come and live on campus. We're just doing it with a reduced occupancy. So basically we're at about 50% occupancy at Ryder right now. And so those students, you know, will be living more in singles, less sharing of bathrooms and that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. So that's fantastic. So then, and so there are accommodations like when the people that are commuting, when you're coming into the classrooms themselves, have you made adjustments there as well, as far as those, the laboratories and just, just the campus itself, have you had to make changes there as well? Absolutely. So as mandated by the state and the office of the secretary of higher education, all classrooms must adhere to social distancing. So, you know, six feet of social distancing, all indoor spaces, including classrooms, is ma there's mask wearing that's mandatory. So, you know, and it, so the students that are coming into the classes, they're already now at a reduced capacity because of social distancing. So maybe it's a classroom that used to hold 20, now it can only hold 10. Plus our facilities crew has done a phenomenal job of making sure that all of our buildings have sanitizing hand wipes and, and, and hand sanitizers and all the things that you can go into a room, grab a wipe, clean your surface, wipe it down, almost the same way that if you use gym equipment, right? So you're used to, if you use a piece of equipment, you wipe it down before and after. In the classrooms, it's going to be the same thing. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Master Finances. We're going to be right back. We are back with the Weekend Rewind edition of Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner with Certified Wealth Management and Investment, LLC, only on 107.7 The Bronx. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finance. I'm Kurt Baker here with Dr. Kelly Vital, and we're talking about some of the interesting challenges that higher education has had, and in fact, all education is going to have this coming fall, and some of the adjustments that we made in order to accommodate some of the students who maybe didn't have any place to go and uh, when COVID hit and they had were sent home. So you made accommodations on campus. You've also had to make some adjustments for online learning. Fortunately, I guess in your case, Ryder had some experience already doing some online courses. And so you kind of, I guess you had a professor to professor uh, consultation group of some kind, I'm assuming, where they would help each other out. The ones that have been doing it would help other ones get their things online. And I know you've got some unique challenges with some of the courses that aren't so easy really to bring online. Yeah, so what do you, what do you think is going to happen now that you got a little bit more experience? You've been you kind of finished out last semester. We kind of thought we might be back in the fall, but then we weren't sure. And now 
it's looking like a, a good good portion of the learning is going to happen online, right? And so so how are you guys preparing right now? I know there's probably a lot happening because the rules keep changing, right? The, the governor keeps deciding yeah. different things. And so how has that little process been going on over the summer? And have you had to make any adjustments based on, you know, the different rules that are coming and going, so to speak, right? Yeah. So so I, you, you bring up a good point that the rules, we're sort of on a little bit of shifting sand right now. So us at Ryder, just like many other universities, have pivoted about two or three times over the summer because of sort of these changing rules. Where we've landed is we're going to begin the semester remotely for three weeks, allowing students to get onto campus, allowing those that have to have mandatory quarantines coming from other states the time to do the quarantining. And then we're going to begin the semester with a mix of hybrid in-person and remote instruction on the 21st of September. And as far as over the summer, our faculty have been fantastic. They've been preparing all summer for how to deliver remote instruction to our students in the most quality of ways. And you're right, there is a lot of peer-to-peer sort of help for those that know what they're doing to those that don't know as much. We have a teaching and learning center that has been running sessions all summer about, you know, how do you Zoom and how do you do discussion groups and, and all of that sort of thing. But the critical thing I'll I'll mention that I think is really a lesson we learned from the spring that I think we're taking really good advantage of, students really prefer what I'm going to call synchronous remote learning, meaning they tune in at the time of class and their instructor is there and there is, I'm going to call it face-to-face instruction, but it should be more like screen-to-screen instruction. Over 80% of our remote courses that we're delivering this fall are going to be synchronous, that our faculty will be in real time teaching lessons to their students. And I think that's really, really important because students need that interaction. They need that feedback. They need to be there with their peers. It's the closest thing we can do to giving them sort of that mimicking that in-person instruction as we can in a remote setting. Yeah, you went through a lot there. I guess some of the things that come to mind here now, um, once we start going back to school, I remember Notre Dame as an example, they went back and all of a sudden they had some cases and mm-hmm. they kind of closed down. So a lot of the questions that I hear coming up are, what are kind of the plans in place if you do have kind of an outbreak? How do you address that every one of us as an individual are kind of in a different place with this, right? Some of us are like, yeah, I want to go out and you know interact with everybody right now, and I'm not really that concerned about it. And others are like, they don't want to leave their home. And then everybody's in between. So how do you kind of address the ones that are actually pretty concerned about it, whether they be a staff or a student? Are there ways to kind of compromise or adjust for those concerns that they might have? And then the other part is, if something were to happen, do you have any kind of like benchmarks or ideas of, well, if this happens, we're going to go to kind of the plan B or a different different kind of situation if if something happens on campus itself, as far as an outbreak goes? Yeah, Kurt, the first part of your question is the crux of what higher education is facing right now, right? That there's all kinds of different behaviors from students, faculty, and staff, you know, and you know, as we've seen with some of the outbreaks on campuses, it's it's not happening in the classroom. It's basically like parties and gatherings and things where maybe folks aren't being as safe and cautious as they need to be. So I do know that, you know, Ryder, like many other universities, has a student pledge where we're basically asking students to please, you know, keep the health and safety in mind of the entire community, right? We're all in this together we need to take it seriously. You know, so it remains to be seen, you know, when our population comes back, what's going to happen. But as far as, you know, the the second part of your question, we certainly have a quarantining plan on campus. We have a plan for if students do get sick, what we do with that. I mean, that plan is tight right now. The question is, 
when do you pull the plug on things? You know, what's that critical number where if we do have an outbreak or there are so many students quarantining, what do we do? We have a really good sense of what that's going to look like too. We've been very conservative in our planning and just, I'm a microbiologist and to me, like health and safety is the most critical thing right now. I understand students want to be on ground. They want to be on campus. But if they want to do that, then then they have to have those behaviors that are going to allow us to do that. So speaking of the health and safety, I mean, what are some of the protocols? I mean, we hear different protocols depending on where you are, like, like on a plane, as an example, might be a little bit different than if you're going to a restaurant where you have to wear a mask until you sit down and then you're allowed not to, but the staff is still wearing one. So are there different kind of protocols based on the circumstances that the students and the staff might be in at a particular time or the type of class that they might be involved in? Yeah, I I can tell you in the classroom, mask wearing is mandatory. Now, for the faculty in person teaching the class, a mask is a very, it's a bit of an impediment, right? Mm -hmm. So what we've landed on is the faculty will be six to 10 feet away from where any of the students are sitting, and they'll be wearing plexiglass shields that we've synthesized, um, actually with some of our own 3D printing on campus, um, (laughs) to allow... faculty that plastic barrier in front of their face, but not being impeded by a mask. You know, and I'll give you really easy or or an example of why a mask when you're teaching is difficult. We have students that need to lip read, right? And so for an accommodation, we need to make sure that the student can actually see what the faculty member is saying. And so that's just one example of why the plexiglass mask during teaching makes a lot of sense. I think that's great. I remember somebody, uh, I think it was the mother actually made uh, in the early stages, she made a, her own mask, which had a little plexiglass, like little cutout. So her, I think it was her son. So her son could read her lips while she was talking to him. <laughs> I did see that. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I thought that, that was pretty creative. Um, what about, I mean, we hear about temperatures. So what are your thoughts about uh, temperature? I know we're having a walk coming up ourselves for our nonprofit. And we have these little temperature things. We're going to take everybody's temperature as they come in. Is that the type of thing that might be monitored on campus? Because uh, I hear pros and cons to that, whether it's accurate or not accurate. What are your thoughts about that based yeah. on what we know right now? Yeah, so what I can tell you, there's two things we're doing. One, in high-density areas like residence halls, the library, dining halls, we are doing temperature checks. It's hard to enforce that in other places where there's less density, but every person on campus, whether they're a commuting student, a resident student, faculty, or staff, or administrator, we have to do contact tracing every day. So everyone at Rider has an app where we have to fill it in every day. And if you haven't filled that in every day, you are not allowed on campus or to go into a classroom or anything like that. So what would trigger having to get a test done? I'm assuming you have some protocol in place for at what point somebody might want to get tested. Um, have they been given guidelines or do you have, I mean, how did, how did you work that out is to find yeah. out that they're affected? Yeah, so for students on campus, because they're covered by you know health and student health insurance, any symptom reporting is going to trigger a test at the health center. Um, for faculty and staff, any symptom reporting basically means do not come to campus and go see your healthcare provider for a test. Well, I know one of the one of the challenges that we've personally, because I've taken this test myself just to be careful. I was visiting my, an elderly father who was at, at risk, mm-hmm. and mine took like five or six days before I got it back. I think my daughter's took two or three a, a couple of weeks later. Uh, are there, is there any concern about the lag time? Or I know somebody had these instant tests, but that's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing more of these tests that go off to a lab, and it's a couple of days later before you get a result. So what, yeah. are you, what are your thoughts about that? That's a really great question. And that's the problem I think we're just grappling with as a country, right? So not just access to testing, but also rapid results to testing. Because waiting five days does nobody any good. 
right? So I do know that in addition to some of the saliva tests that we've procured, we're also looking at FDA-approved uh, antigen tests. And so they are not as accurate as the PCR RNA detection tests that the saliva or the swabs do, but antigen testing has its, has its place and it also is rapid. And so we have a, a, a good number of those on campus as well. So is, is that, that that 10 or 10 to 15 minute one they talk about? Is that the antigen test? Uh, yeah, so basically it's, it's detecting the antigens that are present on the virus itself. So yeah, it's a it's a quick rapid test. It's not as accurate. It's between yeah. 80 and 85% accurate, but it certainly is better than than waiting for 5 days. Right, right. So you could be cautious if you get a, if you get a positive, right? And then uh Exactly. And I, I guess you could take in coordination with another test if you were concerned, right? And the one yeah. right away, and the one would be a few days later. Right. Yeah. Because I have heard the testing is speeding up. That's my, that's that's been my experience with the people that I know. What have you heard as far as the ones you send away? I mean, it used to take. It seems to be getting on the shorter end, like days instead of like a week or so. Yeah, I, I think it is, but I also think it depends on where you live, right. what kind of test it is, where it's getting processed. I mean, it's right. still not as tight, quite frankly, in the past six months as it should be. Yeah, no, I hear you. Oh, yeah. We're going to take another quick break here. You're listening to Master Your Finances. We're going to be right back. We are back with a weekend rewind edition of Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner with Certified Wealth Management Investment, LLC, only on 107.7 The Bronx. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I'm Kurt Baker here with uh, Dr. Kelly Vital, and we're talking about you know the education and, and all the, the changes that we've been making during the pandemic and the adjustments that were going on, and now you're getting ready for the fall semester. Of course, the rules change as more data comes out and the governor, each governor is making their own decisions on what might be happening. Cause I know, I know different like locations and States and probably different universities are reading the data differently, maybe slightly and saying, well, this is what we think is the best approach. How does a university that's never been through this before? I mean, do you guys coordinate together? Do you talk together and maybe learn from other places in New Jersey, maybe even across the country about what's going on? Because again, we're all going through this for the first time. I'm just wondering how you can use that pooled knowledge to work out and maybe help everybody a little bit. Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer your question, but before I do that, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to what you said in the beginning, just about how difficult it is to figure out what to do given this is so unprecedented. And what I can say is, what's been incredibly frustrating, Kurt, is the lack of real guidance for us. Right. So it's almost as if we're all figuring it out, all figuring this, this, these plans out on our own, right? And so instead of this more cohesive approach, you know, you hit the nail on the head. People are looking at data differently. They're making their decisions differently. And, and that's not useful. That is just not useful. And I think it's really slowed us down in terms of having a better response. And so that's just my, my own personal feelings. But, but to your question, absolutely, within the state, you know, there has been a consortium of, of university presidents from, uh, from the privates, uh, Ryder included. They talk weekly, sometimes multiple times a week. They talk about best practices. They talk about what their plans are. President Delomo, who is the president of Ryder University, has been fantastic bringing those thoughts and that information back to the cabinet and the deans. And so our decision-making has certainly not been in a vacuum. I can tell you that. I mean, and you could probably tell from like looking at the plans across the state of what many universities are doing, we're all doing very, very similar things. Well, and yeah, that's interesting. No, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, one thing that I just, I'm, I'm thinking back to the beginning again. In fact, I think of the name of the, our organization, you know, Center for Disease Control, right? 
I mean, the name itself says their whole purpose is to control disease. And it sounds to me like, and I don't, you know, I don't want to turn this into, I want to turn this into a scientific conversation, but it's kind of like, we kind of knew this was going to happen at some point, right? We knew, we didn't know the level, we didn't know the degree. And I would have thought that we would have been a little bit better prepared, whether it's local or state or national, whatever the case may be. I mean, I guess, did universities even have conversations about this before this kind of hit us? Because I know I didn't really talk about it much. I mean, I, you, I'd read articles every once in a while, but well, get ready. At some point, we're going to have some virus or something that's good. We're all going to have to respond to. I mean, I do remember reading articles like that, but everybody's like, ah, well, whatever. That was back in the 1900, early 1900s. And <laughs> yeah, don't worry, we got great science and we're, we're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> kind uh, of the response people had. I think it's a real tragedy that it wasn't taken more seriously sooner. I, I, I mean, that's a common theme that you hear over and over again, whether you're in higher ed, whether you're just as a, a citizen of the United States reading the newspaper. I mean, we, we weren't prepared. We were not prepared in any way, shape or form. And so to your question, no, there were no discussions in higher ed in January and February happening about this. It really hit the way it hit most people. Like, oh my God, what has happened and what are we going to do about it? And the, and the fact that there was no plan or it wasn't taken as seriously as it needed to be early on, like I said, I think is a real tragedy. And it was preventable. It was preventable. Right. So I'm thinking, so now what I'm, now what I'm trying to do is, 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 you know, now, now that we were, you know, we're, we're a good portion of the way through this. We're not done. I don't think, I think most people would agree with that, but once we're done, what do you think we might do a little differently in, in 2021, 2022, whenever, whenever this thing finally really does kind of fade away a little bit and we say, Hey, you never know. The next one might be six months afterwards, or it might be a hundred years after, but we, we don't want to be caught in the same situation necessarily. We should have some basic things in place so that we can kind of ramp up fairly quickly if it becomes necessary. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Well, on a, on a really simple level, if you look at other countries, you know, and we did this for a while, right? We locked down. So other countries locked down, we locked down. We didn't lock down tight enough. We didn't, you know, mandatory mask wearing came too late. We didn't do that soon enough. And yet, if you look at other countries that handled things a little better, it was a national mandate, mask wearing, right? And lockdown and being a good citizen and all of those things. And I think, I think a lot of Americans were great about it and they proved that they could do those things. It's just, you know, I, I don't want to, you said you didn't want to turn this into a scientific discussion, which I really love. No, I do want it to be scientific. But, but, I, but I don't want to turn this into a political discussion, right. but I will say that, you know, it would have been helpful to to have our leader wearing a mask and sort of mimicking what we all should be doing. And I'll leave it at that. No, that's fine. And and uh, no, that's perfectly legitimate. Uh, one thing I, that kind of struck me initially was like, I, I, I used to think this years ago is how certain cultures, like it's, I'm thinking like in the, in the Asian world, wearing a mask is fairly common, right? They'll wear it on their way to work. Mm-hmm. And I always thought of that being more of, you know, from a, uh, you know, pollution standpoint, but it, I, I think it's more than that. And do you think that once this is over, that some people will continue to do that because it's good? I, my, I'm, I'm going to guess that I'm, I'm assuming influenza is way down this year, right? Because if everybody's doing social distancing and being self quarantined, even when we're out and about used through a mask and six feet and things like that, aren't mm-hmm. we spreading less disease in general? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, to, to the question about what happens after, you know, I say this to to any, you know, my husband and I talk about this all the time, you know, 
think about the, the, the silent generation, the one that went through the Great Depression, right? That left an indelible mark on those people and their behaviors were just irrevocably changed after that. I look at this as something that is going to, to just put a stamp on us and our behaviors are going to be so different moving forward. I mean, think about it yourself. Would you be shake? I mean, are you going to continue to shake people's hands in the future? Are you going to continue to give people that you don't know so well a hug? I mean, I know that seems really funny to think about, but in all seriousness, I think about my own behaviors and I think about as Dean, how many people's hands I shake. And I'm thinking, wow, I don't, I don't know how comfortable I'm going to feel doing that in the future. Yeah, you bring up a good point, but I like I, you know, I like people, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. But I probably should. I, I think I will definitely be washing my hands a lot more, and even though I did it pretty consistently anyway. Because um, I was talking to friends, you know, I have uh, you know sister in laws of nurse, and we have friends that are nurses, and they say the biggest thing they keep talking, even in the early in the process, was keep everything clean, keep your hands clean, because if your hands are clean and you accidentally touch your face or your nose or whatever, uh, that's the key from their perspective. Is just they, they they were talking about how. If they wash their hands like a hundred times at work because they're going from one room to the next room to the next room and every, between every patient, they're obviously washing their hands and, and moving on. So I, I have a feeling that definitely, uh, at least I know personally, I will be very, very careful about that um, washing hands and keep them very you know, clean as far as that's concerned. Absolutely. Uh, and those are, and those are all good behaviors to have learned from this experience. Right. And then, you know, hopefully, when the vaccine is ready, you know, folks will not be afraid to get that. You know, that's a whole other can of worms to talk about. But I know, at least on campus, you know, bringing it back to the idea of higher ed, we are going to start in September having, you know, flu vaccines available and ready for students and staff and faculty. Because, you know, even though we don't have the, the COVID-19 vaccine ready yet, it is still going to be flu season. And you don't want that perfect storm of flu outbreaks along with COVID outbreaks. And so, you know, I would just remind folks here as a public service announcement to remember to get your flu vaccine starting in September. Oh, I agree. Now, was that something you were doing prior to COVID or had you always done that? We've always um, had a faculty staff, um, you know, vaccine, like a wellness fair, but it's usually okay. later in the fall, but um, we're just trying to be a little bit more proactive in getting that done soon in, in the fall, early as possible. Mm -hmm. So I know through, through every time we have a, a, a shift in knowledge, I know we, we, we've had some challenges, but I think through challenges, we, we tend to learn things. Um, so what have you learned that maybe um, we're going to take with us as a positive, right? So we all, I think a lot of us talk about all the negative things that just happened to us over the last few months, but I think there's some positives that came out of it. Um, one, I've learned how to use video conferencing tools much, much better. It was always one of those things in business where yeah, it'd be great to know that because you never know when a client might want to talk to you on video call. But, you know, it wasn't a real big demand because my, my clients weren't really using it. I wasn't really using it. So we didn't both want to kind of learn at the same time. But now that everybody knows how to use this stuff, I'm, I'm doing it all the time. So I, I would take that as a positive that we've all learned how to use video conferencing equipment. What, what other things maybe have you seen through this experience that we might take forward to us um, kind of as a positive that we've learned that we can, you know, advance ourselves going forward? Um, positives. So I think folks have the idea that higher ed is a dinosaur and that, you know, doesn't know how to change. I think from this, we've learned how to adapt and, and we've shown, you know, our students, our faculty, our staff that we do know how to adapt. I would also say that it shows us that we have learned how to be really creative and innovative. I, I think there's a lot of new ways we can deliver our curricula. And I think that's all a good thing. I, I see positive change happening as a result of this. But I also say that higher ed is still a critical, 
critical piece to a student's development and education is still a key. And I would hope that a lot of students still continue to see higher ed as an important piece of their, their learning experience. Well, I would have to agree. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. You're listening to Master Your Finances. We'll be right back. We are back with the Weekend Rewind edition of Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner with Certified Wealth Management and Investment, LLC, only on 107.7 The Bronx. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I'm Kurt Baker here with Dr. Kelly Vital, and we are talking about the challenges that we've had in higher education uh, with making adjustments and, and how you guys have successfully been kind of navigating all of those uh, adjustments as things as new information comes out. And we get feedback from your students and from your faculty. And of course, uh, government's involved here with the, the rules that they're laying out. And you guys have done a great job of making those adjustments. And now you're getting ready for the fall quarter. And I know some of the conversations out there are, wow, uh, well, they're going to do, as you mentioned, they're going to be you know three weeks online, and then you're going to have things on campus. And I, I know some people are talking about, well, okay, this is a different experience. Is the value the same as it was when we're all going on campus and having that quote college experience that most of us who've been to college remember what are your thoughts about that conversation um and how do you address that yeah and that's a it's a it's a hard question but it's a fair question um you know i'll I'll start answering that by saying that i i still believe that the quality of education remains the same whether it's delivered remotely or it's on ground the cost of instruction does not change right so the faculty delivering the cost are the same faculty, whether they're delivering it to you in person or not, they're still the same faculty that are giving you the same, you know, coursework and feedback and, and all of that stuff. So, so again, the quality of the instruction should remain the same. The cost of the instruction remains the same. And I would argue the degree that you receive from the institution of higher learning is also the same, whether or not, you know, you had to take some remote courses or they were in person, but it doesn't dilute what that degree is or, or take away the education that you received. And so I, I totally understand why folks are asking those questions. But, you know, the other part of the, the answer is that with having to pivot to much more remote instruction, the costs of technology and the infrastructure that the universities have had to bear to make it possible is also not insignificant. And so, you know, there's, it's a complicated question and I, I, I'm hoping I'm answering what you're, what you're looking for, but um, I, I no, would- you definitely are. Another aspect of college, at least from my perspective, um, I mean, I still, I met a lot of great people when I went to college, right? So it's, it's the education, but I think in part, it's who you meet, the networking of kind of similar thinking and minds and things like that. You meet a lot of really good people that sometimes will be your friends for life. And so how are you, are there any um, ideas, of how do you continue to help students kind of stay networked together from an education standpoint, as well as from kind of a social standpoint, because we are social human beings. Yeah. And I think that is a big part of the growing process when you're in college, as we're moving out of high school, you're a little bit more on your own. It is kind of a step into adulthood as well, not just the education, but also kind of from a social emotional standpoint as well. So what are your thoughts about how that's being addressed when the, the structure is a little bit different now. Yeah, and that's, I think that's so critical what you pointed out there, Kurt, is that college is so much more than just your coursework and so much more than just the classes you're taking. It's that networking, that time to grow up, that time to meet lifelong friends and, and that sort of thing. And so the two things during this time, and you know, again, this is a moment in time and I know we're all gonna be back on ground together soon and hopefully all those great experiences will happen. But from the academic standpoint, 
faculty are not just teaching their classes. They're having virtual office hours and drop-ins and all of that stuff. So students can outside of class say, hey, I'm thinking about this internship or I'm thinking about grad school, can we talk? So that faculty academic advising piece will not go away. That's a continued networking experience for students that we will still try to make as much available to them as possible. And then on the social side of things, our residence life and student affairs team I know have been working really, really hard, has have others across other universities at trying to make experiences for students where they can gather and meet each other and, and those sorts of things. And there's no replacement, like you say, for that in-person experience, but um, those haven't gone away. They're just virtual at the moment. Oh, that sounds great. I know that it sounds like things like drive-in movies are coming back, right? Did we, uh, in fact, that was one of my responses when they said they couldn't have these conventions that we're having right now in person. I said, yeah. you know, they should have like a drive-in setup, and it turns out they had that, right? Yeah, <laughs> so we, we, we I was did. like, hey, they took my idea. But yeah. back in June, there was a drive-in on campus, and apparently it was sold out, and it was a ton of fun. Yeah, I remember them as a kid, and they kind of all disappeared, right? They got redeveloped into something else. So yeah. are those kind of some of the, the the changes? I mean, I know we're not. So you get, you're going to have, I assume, through um, the different software and, and, and electronic things we have, so we can still stay connected that way. But mm -hmm. when they're on the campus, I know we have these requirements. We have to be safe, right? So right. are there ways to still communicate with each other? I guess you'll have places like the library and things like that. You'll have the dining hall and uh, mm -hmm. where they can still get gather, I guess, to some degree, but they have to maintain their safety as well, correct? Yeah, so all of that and what I can tell you is if you will walk, if you ever have a chance to walk on campus anytime soon, we have very large tents that have been put up all over Clint campus. They're outfitted with lighting and tables and chairs. And so, you know, as we all know, it's much safer to gather outside than it is indoors. And so, you know, again, facilities, residence life, student affairs are doing all these added uh, infrastructure on campus so that students can gather and, you know, have music or, or whatever. And so it's not perfect, but we certainly are, are encouraging our students like get out and be social and see each other. Hmm. Have you noticed any of the students like changing what they might want to study based on what they've been learning over the last uh, few months? I know whenever we have an interesting knowledge uh, growth, so to speak, as a society, sometimes people are like, wow, I'd like to be more involved in maybe learning how to find a vaccine, find a cure for a, a virus and things like that. Have any, have any people like, has it perked their interest from an education standpoint? Ah, that's, you know, I, I, haven't seen that, Kurt, but I think that's a really interesting uh, observation, right? Going into public health or microbiology or virology or something like that. I don't know. And I think I won't know that until I get back and sort of look at and see where some of our majors have gravitated towards. But I, I haven't seen any evidence of that yet. And I know just because we're kind of being forced to learn a little bit, right? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't know what an antigen test was until we started talking about it. I mean, what the heck is that? You know, what are these different, what do you mean there's different types of tests? I thought you just went and, you know, yeah. you got yeah. the, I thought they're all the same, but apparently there's lots of different ways to detect whether or not we might have a virus. So have we learned anything, I guess, from since, since that's a little bit of your expertise, mm -hmm. have we learned anything as far as, it seems like they ramped up an awful lot of different types of tests fairly quickly from my perspective. Um, so what have we, have we learned anything from that process itself about how to find these tests and hopefully how to find a, a vaccine sooner rather than later? Because normally these things take a couple of years, right? Under right. most circumstances. Right. Well, I, I think why you've seen, uh, I will say the entrepreneurial spirit in America is strong, right? So I think the fact that you've seen so many tests pop up 
I think what I would caution all of your listeners to make sure is that make sure that whatever test they use is FDA approved, because there are a lot of sketchy tests out there that I would be very wary of. But you're absolutely right. Developing a vaccine that's safe is a is not something that happens overnight. But given how deadly this virus is, I I am hopeful that that process can be sped up safely. But I I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, because I remember, well, I think we heard, didn't didn't Putin say, I have a a vaccine, but I think they had three people tested or something. Yeah. (laughs) It sounded like it was, they they hadn't actually done it in any kind of widespread manner yet, right? And I think that's where you know, mm-hmm. you learn where people might have uh, negative responses to the, the vaccine itself, right? It's it's, right. Hard to, it's kind of hard to know some of this until people actually are trying it, right? Exactly. I mean, that's there, there's a reason why any drug or vaccine that you take has gone through so many copious clinical trials and been tested on so many people. That way, you know what you're taking is safe and effective. You know, there's a reason why we have these these processes and standards in place, I will say. Well, that's good. Hopefully they do a good job. So now they've, have they, haven't they streamlined? I know the FDA is still involved, right? So, but have they, they've streamlined some of these processes from what I understand as well at this point. It's, yeah. Right? The one that I'm the most familiar with. So, so Rutgers University had really the gold standard with their saliva test that they developed early. And that was very, very accurate. I just read that Yale University has taken that saliva test and sort of streamlined it to the fact that the results are faster. I don't know if they're as accurate, but they have cut out some of some of the labor that's involved in the Rutgers test. So, but see, like, look at this, Kurt, right? That's two universities with like world-class scientists and faculty developing these tests. Those are where we should be looking, you know, for accurate testing and and things of that nature, not maybe some of these sort of, I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to trust our, 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 our smart people over. (laughs) I'm I'm with you on that one for sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's it's fantastic what we've been doing. So, um, any any more thoughts about how we see education maybe rolling forward after as we kind of mature through this? I guess I guess we hear different time frames, but I, I believe most of us are 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 probably thinking this is at least through next spring at some level. So, what are your thoughts about how the year might finish out and and how we might move ahead from there as we wrap up here? Sure. Well, yeah. And, and you point out accurately, spring right now is a big black box. We don't know what that's going to look like. But I do know that when we are able to get back to campus and get back to normal, whatever normal is going to look like, the value of higher education remains one of the best things that anyone can invest in. I think having learned a lot through this, we are going to probably do even better with our remote delivery, remote instruction, and giving students maybe more and different ways to learn. And I would also just say that I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that by this time next fall, um, we get back to business as usual. I really do. All right, Dr. Kelly Beidel, I appreciate everything you did and that you're doing, and I hope you have a fantastic fall and spring. <laughs> I know it's a lot of challenges, but I appreciate you coming on and kind of explaining to people a lot of things that have been going on out there because there's been some confusion. You've been listening to Master Your Finances. You can subscribe by going to masteryourfinance.us. Remember, together we can master your finances so you can enjoy financial peace of mind. That was the Weekend Rewind edition of Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner with Certified Wealth Management and Investment, LLC. You can catch him at his normal time every Sunday at 9 a.m. Tomorrow, Weekend Rewind is back with Health 411. So be sure to tune in right here on 1077 The Bronx.